furthering of your kingdom on earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, before we uh, look at the video, I meant to wear a long sleeve shirt so my arms weren't a distraction. Had multiple people ask me, so I forgot my long sleeve shirt. I trimmed a tree, and so Kathy wasn't mad at me. We have no cats, and just trimming the tree. Let me give you a brief uh, introduction to this. Uh, this lasts a little over a minute, this video, and what you're looking at is uh, uh, tornado chasers. So what you'll see is, and depending, the, the quality is not that great as far as the sound especially, but what you'll see is the guys start chasing the tornado, then the tornado chases them, and you can listen, catch what you can verbally, and I'll, I'll catch some of that up too. this you couldn't hear it um you know so joel's driving and reed is yelling and at that last right before that last thing uh joel says it's a really strong tornado <laughs> and reed says we're okay we're fine <laughs> so just think about that setting so they're in front of a tornado. Now, I don't know how big this one was. and probably, It's probably small, right, compared to tornadoes, but you can get wind speeds up to 300 miles an hour, a mile across, miles long. So when Reed's saying we're okay in front of this tornado, do you think that has any semblance of reality? <laughs> They're chasing it. It chases them back, and they have no ability. If that thing comes their way, they're, they're toast. But here's this, uh, the appearance of things is, we're in front of this powerful thing. We can't control it. We can't do anything about it. If it chooses to hit us, so to speak, we're toast. And they're saying we're okay and we're fine. And they're not. And we wouldn't be either. So this morning, uh, this is a little unusual introduction. This morning. I'm going to go through a lot of slides. Uh, because when we get into our lesson, if we have a mindset like Reed, uh, we're going to be in Joel, uh, Job this morning. We're going to miss the whole thing about Job. So if we think that we can chase tornadoes and be okay, then we don't have a perspective to make sense of what God's going to say to Job this morning. So what we want to do is open our minds up a little bit, use little gray cells, and use our imaginations a little bit to gain some semblance, right, just a little bit, about how 
big and powerful God is, right? The tornado is just a little example of that, but that'll come up in Job, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, so that when we get into the text, there's some semblance of what is God really saying and what's our relationship to God and what's his to ours. So this is some theology. How big is God? So a tornado is pretty big, you know, but how big is God? So if you look up at the night sky, which, by the way, is one of my favorite things to do, you know, you can see a long way, can't you? You can see a long way out in the stars you're seeing. They're light years away. But God's bigger than everything you can see in that night sky. One of my favorite constellations, and if you're up in the morning, you'll see Orion going down in the west. But God says he's so big, and he says this in Job, that he leads constellations like Orion. That's 850 light years across the span of those stars you see, which, of course, aren't even on a level plane. They're separated by light years in multiple directions. Or the Big Bear, the Big Dipper, God says he leads them forth like they're puppies on a lead. He just leads them forth. He's that big. This spiral galaxy is 60,000 light years across. And God says he's bigger than that too. And so in theology, we would say God is omnipresent. There's no place that is that God is not. God's as big as, and he's bigger than the cosmos. You know, we keep saying the more information we get, the bigger the cosmos gets. It's expanding. We don't know where the limits of it are. If there are limits, we don't even know that. God's that big and bigger. He's omnipresent. How about how powerful is God? Now, these are, these are examples in Scripture. This one's from Daniel. A lot of God's power he compares to things on the earth. So how powerful is God sort of in the realms in which we live? Well, he's so powerful that he says not only does he set up the kingdoms of the world, if you can remember this from Babylon and Daniel's time in Babylon, he sets up the kingdoms of the world. They're there at his pleasure. And then he says he's going to take them all down. He's going to sweep them all away with a rock hewn without hands, which is Christ and Christ's eternal kingdom. How powerful is God? Well, he sets up all the kingdoms of the earth and then he knocks them all down as it pleases him. God does whatever he wants in heaven and earth, he says in Daniel 4.35, such that no one can say to him, what are you doing? Now, you know where we're headed in Job. Job's go Job is going to say to God, what are you doing? And in Daniel, God says, I'm so powerful that no one can say to me, what are you doing? You don't have status to say that. No one and nothing can withstand God. That's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. Nothing and no one can withstand God's power. You know, on your best day and mine, no matter how filled with rage or anger or sense of power or, or self-importance we are, you and I can't change one thing that God's determined to do. Not one. And no one you know can. And no other power in the universe can. So on this we say in theology, God is omnipotent. He has all power, he has all energy, he has all force. All the collective power of the universe is not enough. God put it there, and his power is greater than that. The power of the universe is not greater than God's. He has all power. Uh, how awesome or how fear-inspiring is God? So we say um, we should fear things that can hurt us, right? That's why if you're on the edge of a cliff and you look down and you get this sudden jolt of, fear it's because if you fall you know you're dead there's that sense of it can hurt me i'm afraid of it what you see in scriptures anytime that god shows up on the scene and anytime he reveals even the least bit of his glory men fall down in his presence men can't stand and look at god unless he enables them to this is ezekiel in ezekiel 1 which is a 
a fabulous passage about God. You remember the storms roll in from the north and there's wheels and wheels and there's this plane and there's the creatures with their wings and they go one way and another. And when Ezekiel sees them, he, he falls down. He can't stand in God's presence. You see the same thing in Daniel and in Isaiah. Uh, Psalm 89.7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, the angels in heaven, awesome above all who are around him. If you and I could see, matter of fact, this happens in Daniel also. Daniel sees an angel and he can't stand in the presence of the angel. Or John, uh, in Revelation, the angels are so glorious, John wants to worship them. The angel has to say, don't do that. God says, I'm above all of those angelic powers, glorious as they are. He also says this, Jesus does in Matthew. The ultimate object of fear is God. The ultimate object of our awe, the most awe-inspiring, fear-inducing element in all the world is God too. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body. Now, usually that's what we're afraid of, aren't we? They can hurt me, or they can make me feel bad about myself, or they can impugn me, or my feelings will get hurt, right? We're really afraid of that, one thing or another. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is the ultimate object of awe and fear. Jesus makes that very clear. How about how much does God know? You know, you and I, you'll have thoughts this afternoon, and right now you don't know what they are, but God does. And you'll have thoughts tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and you don't know what they are now but god already knows what your thoughts will be tomorrow next week next month next year he knows all your thoughts he knows the numbers of hair on your head you know no matter how long it takes god to count you know for some of us it's a long time to count the numbers of hair on your head isn't it for others it's not so long you know or for others we could say god knows the real color of your hair couldn't we it's, he knows the, the least thing about us, the most complex thing about us. God knows all that. You, you may not know what your, your thoughts are. God says he knows. He knows the end from the beginning. In fact, one thing says, uh, I like this. It says uh, Psalm 147, verse 5, God's understanding is infinite. It has no beginning and no end. God never learns anything. You can't tell God anything he doesn't already know. He never learns. He's perfect in his knowledge of all things at all times and always, before, during, and after we call this omniscience god knows all things period and last on this little theology lesson is how holy is god and let's just fill out a little bit what we mean how distinctly different from anyone and anything else is god he's absolutely different you know sometimes when you think of holy you think of something that's just set apart and that's true but it also means unique so if we say, how holy is God, how different from me and you is he, it's absolute. So even though we bear God's image as humans, the difference in the quality of our essence is of such a thing that God cannot share his deity with us. He's of a totally different nature than you and I are or ever can be, even though we're his children. He's absolutely holy. When you see the cherubim and the seraphim in scripture, whenever they see God, you know, they just keep saying the same three words. They have a limited vocabulary. And what do they say? They say, holy, holy, holy. Now, you know, I find it interesting. If you talk to people that aren't Christians, especially, and you tell them this is what angels, you know, the pejorative view of heaven, you're on a cloud with a harp. That's somebody's view, right? The old um, cartoons. And people think of heaven and cloud with a harp, and they're like, who would, want, who would want to play a harp in the first place? 
and who would want to do so on a cloud? It's like, I have no interest in that. Holy, holy, holy sounds about as boring, but you know the thing is, these creatures have sight that you and I don't have. They see things in a way we don't see. They don't have our mortality that sort of veils their sight. They see God as he is. And so whenever they see him, which is all the time, all they can say is he's unique, he's perfect, he's unique, he's perfect, and it just grows a little bit more all the time. They don't get tired of saying holy, holy, holy. God is absolutely uniquely different, and he's absolutely perfect. So God fills all space. He has all power. He's the ultimate object of awe and fear, and he knows everything and is absolutely holy. So that's God. So as we're in Job this morning, Job 10, this is our second to last message, 10th in the series, you've got to come from this place. You've got to come from this understanding that God's God and we're not. God's God and we're not. And he's not like us. He's different than us. Absolutely qualitatively. If we don't get that, you can't get anything else that's meaningful out of the book. We don't understand that. God's God, absolutely different than us. We can't get to where he's at. That's what he's going to talk about this morning. Job made accusations. He thought things about God because he didn't know God as he really was. So in Job's limited view, he thinks God is enough like him that he can require God to explain himself. Or that he can somehow contend with God in an argument. So in his mind, he's lowering God down to his level. And he says, I can call God to account. I can tell God how things are. But you and I, with our view today, and we say we know these things are true about God. Can Job ever get to the place he's made these accusations about God? You can't get there. You can't start there. You can't finish there. None of it makes any sense because God's God and we're not. So this is where God's going to take Job this morning. And you remember all along this whole thing, you know, Job starts out, he's got everything. He loses everything. He starts sort of uh, lamenting that he's even been born. His friends come along and say one thing. He says another. But in all of that, he ends up accusing God of being unrighteous, capricious, unjust, unfair, doesn't really know what he's doing. And so Job's friends have told him what they think's going on. Job's accused God. Elihu's come up and sort of spoken in God's voice and said, well, actually, you do have issues and you're not sin free. And this is what's going on. And now finally, in chapters 38 through 41, God shows up. And so if you can say it this way, Job has his day in court with God. He's wanted to talk to God face to face. He's going to have that opportunity. And so that's where we're at this morning. This is God responding to job now when he starts and that's why we start with that video god shows up in the appearance of a tornado or a whirlwind so think about this for a minute those guys that said we're okay we're fine right they're not they're not sane. you're not okay in front of a tornado so god shows up to job in the form of a tornado now if you and i were standing on the ground and that tornado shows up we know that there's something in front of us that's so big and so powerful, it can harm us and we can't do anything to stop it. This thing is big and it's powerful such that I can't do anything to it. It can only do something to me. So that's significant, right? It's big, it's powerful, and Job knows visually and the sound, you know, the sound of the great wind. He knows 
there's a power in front of me that's so much bigger than me, I can't do a thing about it. I can only respond to it or be affected by its power, but I can't do anything to it. That's one side. So God does want to impress Job with his presence visually. You know, in chapter 42, Job will say, and not just because of the whirlwind, he'll say, I'd heard about you, but now I've seen you. And because I know something more about you than I did before, I repent. So God shows up in this image of great power and potentially destructive power. But think of this also. You've got effectively a four-chapter soliloquy here. But in, in God's conversation in Job, when was the last time he spoke? It was in chapter 2. So in chapter 1 and 2, God's speaking, but he's in heaven. And in the courts of heaven, God is having a discussion with his angels and with Satan, we know. So God's been speaking, but it's been in heaven. Job hasn't heard a word of that. So even though we know God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at all times, God has to, in a sense, if we can say it this way, he has to personally condescend from heaven to earth if he's going to have this face-to-face interaction with Job. He's got to leave heaven. He's got to come to earth if he's going to have the face-to-face contention, if you will, with Job. If God doesn't condescend, he can't have the conversation. Job can't have his day in court. Job wants to talk to God. He wants God to answer his questions. None of that can happen if God doesn't come down to earth, condescend to Job's level, have that conversation. Do those dynamics sound familiar? God must leave heaven. He must come to earth so that we can see him face-to-face and have a conversation. That's significant, isn't it? Because if you put it in those terms, it's also the incarnation, isn't it? God the Son leaves heaven. He comes down to earth because he's going to have a face-to-face conversation with man. And that's the ultimate condescension. When we see Job, and you guys know this, but Scripture always eventually, ultimately, is talking about God and about Christ. So here, God condescends in a powerful presence that's still small enough on scale that Job can, in a sense, interact with him. What God will ultimately do, though, is come down in his own person, in his son. And it won't be the great wind. It won't be the fire, a pillar of fire or cloud. It's going to be this humility, born as a baby, in in a mother's womb, that vulnerable. Doesn't that say something about uh, life in the womb, too, the value of life in the womb? That God was a baby in a mother's womb, that vulnerable. And then he's a little boy. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He sweats. He cries. He's just like us. Ultimately, God's condescension isn't this whirlwind. It's the person of Christ so that he can have that conversation and relate himself more fully to us. So if we're going to have the conversation, God's got to come down to us. We can't get up to him. So God's going to show up, and then he's going to have a conversation with Job. And if you have your study sheet, uh, the references are there, um, and they're not all on the overhead. So Job 38, 1 through 7, the Lord does speak to Job out of a whirlwind, and he said, now, God's going to reprove Job about, Job, do you have the, uh, the quality necessary to engage me, to challenge me? And do you have the knowledge necessary to engage in a conversation with me, a contentious one at that? So God says this. By the way, some of this will be reviewed because we've touched on it in some of those other topics, but we'll go through it again this morning. Uh, who is this? 
and this is Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So God says to Job, you're speaking, but you're not making any sense. Words are coming out of your mouth, but there's no knowledge behind them. <laughs> he says, dress for action like a man. We would say today, put on your big boy pants and stand up because you, you want to contend with me. So put on your big boy pants and that's what we'll do right now. He says, now I'm going to question you and you make it known to me. Job, you've been challenging me, so I'm just going to ask you a few questions. You let me know how things really are. Where were you? Where were you? So this is essence. This is time. This is how long have you been around? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And everything here, of course, is sarcasm. Because Job has none of these qualities necessary to engage with God. He says, who determined the earth's measurements? Surely you know. But of course he knows. Job has no knowledge. Absolutely none. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? So God first goes back and he says, Job, I'm eternal. Before anything existed, I existed. And I'm the one who put the heavens and the earth together. Were you there when I did that? He says the angels were. The morning stars, the sons of God, they were there. They sang. Were you there with them? They're created, but they existed before the earth did. Were you there with them? And of course, he wasn't. God's pointing out to Job, you don't, you don't have the essence of eternality to be able to engage with an eternal, omnipotent God. You can't get in this argument. I was there, where were you? You were nowhere to be found. Job doesn't have the wisdom or the knowledge to engage God in this contention that Job wants to have with him. There's a story, this is a true story, and, a, and the author wrote about it. I won't mention his name this morning, but there's a well-known theologian in the United States today, and he's a very bright guy, and when he was still in academia, as far as getting his degrees, he was going to get a PhD, and he went to Germany to do it, uh, to, to Bingen, a university, very prestigious, and sort of the upper, upper academic echelon in the world's universities for philosophy and theology, and so he goes and he's got this great professor and he's studying under him. And I think he was three years in this study, maybe four. He interacts with that guy's former students. He asks some questions. He says, what do I need to know? My thesis, you know, I, I finally get to the day where I'm going to defend my thesis orally before my mentor and other professors in the department. So what, what do I need to know? He prepares himself the very best he can. So the day comes, he arrives, he's anxious, he's ready to go defend his thesis so he sits down there his professors and they ask him a question <clears throat> and he knows he's in trouble because the first question they ask him he sits there and he cogitates and he thinks you know this would be uncomfortable right he has no idea so it finally says uh you know i, I don't know and they say okay that's fine uh here's another question so they ask him a second question and he sits there and he thinks and he thinks finally asked to say uh, i don't know they ask him a third and a fourth question it's the same thing he has to say to all of them i don't know they finally ask him a question that's so simple he's embarrassed because he knows not only has he not passed his thesis he has not defended his thesis they've they've asked him a question so simple it's embarrassing to him but that's the level they've had to stoop to 
to give him something he could answer. So here are these PhDs, and here's a would-be PhD, and he realizes I'm not in the same category as these guys. I can't get in the discussion with these guys. I thought I could. I thought I knew enough to have the conversation to defend my idea. But once I sat in their presence, I realized I don't know the first thing about what I thought I did. Now, we take that dynamic, and, but we extrapolate it infinitely. And, and we're this kindergartner, if that. And God's the PhD. And God says to the kindergarten, you can't enter into discussion. You guys ever, I, I'm no math major. You guys ever see the formulas on the boards, you know, the real math people? You know, when I walk up to that, right, it's a foreign language. It is a language, right? It's a foreign language. I have no idea what's up there. Symbol for eternity, brackets, you know, I know a few of them, but I have no idea what's up there. That's the concept here. God's telling Job, you don't know the first thing that you need to know to have a conversation with me. You can not only not accuse me, you can't even intelligently enter into a conversation with me. You don't know the first thing about what's going on here. You can't even start this conversation. Job has no wisdom. He's a recent arrival on the earth. And just think of eternity. You know, you and I, we're going to live forever, right? Live forever. Or without Christ, we exist forever. We wouldn't say we live forever. We exist forever. You know, in math, you've got a ray and you've got a line. So for ray, you've got a point and it goes and we could say it goes forever. Well, that'd be like you and I, wouldn't it? A starting point, a point, conception and birth, and we go on forever. But what would God be? He'd be a line, wouldn't he? There is no point of beginning and there is no point of end. You and I can be rays all day. We'll never be a line. We'll never be that line with no beginning and no end. It's an impossibility. And God's trying to get that across to Job. I don't have a beginning, Job, and you've been here a few years on earth. How do you think you can intelligently interact with me? It can't happen. Not the way Job thought it could. Uh, he goes on in chapter 40 after he's established that Job lacks the wisdom, the knowledge, the, the essential personhood to engage with God, he then makes it a, an issue about glory and power. And this is in chapter 14. By the way, if you haven't read Job 38 through 41, sometime today or this week, just read those chapters just by themselves. They're really amazing. And we're just picking a couple points here this morning. Job 40, verses 9 through 14 God says to Job, do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? You know, in the Old Testament, horns and arms are symbols of power. So God says to Job, do you have power like I have? Now, we know God's omnipotent. He has all power. How much power does Job have? And remember where he's at. He's covered with boils. He's sitting in an ash heap, sick and miserable. And God says, do you have an arm like me? It's laughable, isn't it? Here's this poor, sobering, whimpering guy in the ash heap. And God says, do you have strength like I have? You don't even need to ask, ask the question. You have strength like I have. Or have you guys ever been, uh, maybe in the mountains or even in a house if you have old windows, have you guys ever been in the clouds when a big thunder comes through? Big enough that you feel it? You know, that the, the thunder, um, if you're close enough, you can feel vibrations in your own body or you can hear the glass in a house if there are old panes rattling. You can feel it through the rocks you're around or the earth. God says, do you have a voice like my voice? Do you have power like my power? 
Do you have a voice that when you speak, there's power emitted that affects everything around you? And of course, Job doesn't. He says, can you adorn yourself with majesty and dignity? Can you clothe yourself with glory and splendor? It's as if God's in his regal court. He's got all his kingly stuff on. And Job comes in as a pauper, poorly dressed. It wouldn't be appropriate, would it? It's kind of like the high priest Joshua before God in Zechariah. When he's the high priest, he's supposed to be holy before God, but he's standing there and he's in these rags. That's the thought here too. God's entirely glorious, awe-inspiring, and Job is not dressed for the occasion. God says you have no glory, you have no splendor, you have no standing, personal gravity, if you will, in and of yourself to have this conversation. He says, can you look on everyone who is proud and bring him low? Can you tread down the wicked where they stand? Can you hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below? If you can, I'll acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. He says, Job, can you make other people return to ashes and ashes and dust to dust? Can you lay others in the grave like I can? In Sheol. Can you slay them and can you lay them all on the ground? Because I can do that anytime to anyone I want. He says, if you have these qualities, then I'll acknowledge that your own right hand can save you and you're up for the conversation you've demanded. But of course, Job can't. So God points out his own glory and splendor and he says, Job, you don't have anything you need to come into my courts and have this conversation again. And last, he's going to talk about power. And again, you need to read the, the whole passage because he talks about the power of the war horse he talks about eagles and hawks and the animals on the earth, and it's all a demonstration of God's perfections and his power. But where he ends up is that these two beasts that apparently don't exist on the earth anymore, he calls them behemoth and leviathan. So of behemoth, I think these were William Blake's illustrations of these two creatures. Behemoth is this creature that, it's, in fact, he says he's the first or the greatest of God's creations. So he must have been massive. He lived in the river and the reeds and the lotus flowers and the description is hard it says he's got bones like tubes of bronze his limbs are like bars of iron it says his tail's like a cedar tree you know a, a huge tree for them cedars were huge trees that if he sweeps it around it's going to knock everything down around him he says the raging rivers can't frighten him and no one can discern him much less catch him another place in scripture it says every animal on earth has been tamed james says these animals were never tamed. James wasn't around in their day. These were never tamed. You couldn't catch it. And, and in Scripture, waters, uh, rivers, flooding rivers, this, this thing can sit in the flooding river and it affects it in no way. And raging waters and the oceans and the seas in the Old Testament were elements of chaos and confusion and sort of the restless power of the nations on the earth. And yet God's pets live in this place that you and I can't inhabit safely, these raging waters. And then if you look at 41, 1 through 11, he talks about this other creature, Leviathan. Now, Leviathan sounds like a real dragon, fire-breathing dragon, a dragon that lives in the water as well. And he says this of him. He says, you can't hook him like a fisherman would. You can't catch him with a hook. He says, you can't harpoon him like you would a whale. He says, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he? Who can stand before me? And again, this is the lesser to the greater, which is God's thing all along. Job, if you can't do anything, if you're afraid of these creatures that are my pets on the earth, and remember God's everywhere at all times and has all power. 
if you can't interact meaningfully with these guys, why would you think you can interact meaningfully with me? If power's an issue, Job, you can't start the conversation. You can't compel me to do anything. God says he's the God of all power. So he lacks the necessary uh, wisdom, presence, glory, splendor, knowledge, and power. Job has nothing by which he can either intelligently converse with God or meaningfully compel God to do anything or to answer any questions. Now, one of the things you'll notice, and we've talked about this before, what God doesn't do in those four chapters is he never answers Job's questions. The whole book about Job thus far has been why. Why did Job suffer? Why did all that stuff happen? Job tries to figure it out. Those are his accusations against God. His friends try and figure that out. Those are those accusations against Job. Everybody's been asking why. And so when God shows up, he doesn't even touch that topic. He never begins to explain himself to Job, not once. He basically says to Job, I'm the PhD, you're the kindergartner. I'm the strongest man, you're the baby in a cradle. You can't begin the conversation, Job. Now with this, I want to shift gears briefly to Romans 9, verses 10 through 21. And and this is what I mean about the big picture of Job, that if we don't get this, we've missed the whole thing. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, when Paul's writing to the Romans for God, he shifts gears and he starts talking about God's sovereignty. And that's what we're talking about today, too. God is sovereign. He's above all things. We've talked about this before. Nothing in the universe can happen if God didn't cause it or God didn't allow it because he's all-powerful. This is just simple logic. can't be otherwise. If God's all-powerful, that has to be the case. Well, we have a problem with that, don't we? We're just like Job, are we not? When, when the bottom falls out of your life, aren't you tempted to say to God, what are you doing? You've made a mistake. Can, can we renegotiate this thing? Can we change what's going on? I don't think this is right. It's not fair. Has anyone here not said, this isn't fair, God, at some point in your life? It's not fair, but God can't do anything that's not fair. He, he can't even get there. So in Romans 9... Paul's talking about God's sovereignty and he's anticipating some of their questions. And guys, what you'll see is their questions are the questions that spring first to our mind too. So he says this. He says, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And God's point is this. This is what they say through Paul. Uh, They're in the womb. They're in Rebecca's womb. Two little boys. They're twins. They haven't taken a breath. They haven't said a word. They haven't done one thing. They have no memory at this point. Paul says they haven't done good or bad. And in that setting, God says the older is going to serve the younger. God has determined Esau is not primary, the oldest boy. Jacob is. The older will serve the younger. And then later, many, many hundreds of years later, in the Minor Prophets, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Strong language, right? Which Paul anticipates. And he refers back to a passage in Deuteronomy where all of Israel had sinned. If you remember when the Ten Commandments are given and Moses hurries down because God says, your people, they're down there sinning. They haven't even got the covenant yet. They're already breaking it. So God says, go down. And uh, God says, I'm going to destroy them all. They're all guilty. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses says, please don't. And God says, okay, I won't. But this is the deal. I'll have compassion on whom I want to. And I'll harden whom I want to. God says, it's up to me. I'm in charge. I'll do what I want. 
with this person. I'll do what I want with that person. So Paul anticipates the question and he says, you'll say to me then, why does God still find fault? Because who resists his will? Uh, no, God can't blame anybody for their sin because everybody's doing just what God has consigned them to do effectively. So Paul says this, and this is where, this is Job's lesson, and this is your lesson, and this is my lesson. Uh, Job simply says, who are you? This is like God telling Job, put on your big boy pants. Paul says to us, who are you, O man, O little creature, O person, to answer back to God? What standing do you have? to question God about what he's done. He says, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Doesn't the potter have right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So get the picture. So the potter, he's sitting there at his wheel and he's got a big lump of clay. It's all the same stuff. The clay is all the same. There's no difference in it. But he picks up one piece, he puts it on the wheel, he spins it, and let's say he makes a cup or a bowl you're going to use in your kitchen. Maybe you'll glaze it and it'll look lovely. And it's an impressive bowl, and that's you. And then he picks up another lump of clay. The clay is absolutely the same. He puts it on the same wheel, he uses the same hands, and he makes a urinal. Is that okay? Because that's what Paul's saying. That's what God's saying. And what's the bottom line? God basically said, he doesn't answer any of the why questions. He just says, I'm God, and you're not. You're the clay, and I'm the potter, and I'll do whatever I want. And guys, that's the bottom line. God's God, and we're not. He didn't have to explain a thing to us. And when we raise our fists at heaven and say, you're unfair, you're unjust, I don't like this, whatever, we have no standing even to get there. We can't bring a single claim or accusation against God. It's impossible. Because at the end of the day, God just says, I'm God, and you're not. And it's my way, and it's nobody else's way. If we don't come to this point, we will never fear God the way we should. If we don't come to this point, we will never hope in God the way we should. If we don't come to this point, we will never love God the way we should. Because we're worshiping an idol, not the living and true God. God's omnipotent. He does things his way. That's the end of the story. Now, for us, and you know this, it's better than that, isn't it? Because it's not just now that God is God and we're not. It's better than that. God's better than simply just. God's absolutely committed to justice and mercy, isn't he? And we see that when Christ takes on our humanity and dies on the cross. We see God's justice. He's absolutely committed to justice. We see God's mercy. That's why Christ dies. Absolutely committed to mercy. So it's not just that God is God and we're not. It's that this God is loving. He's just. He's righteous. He never does wrong. He's committed to love. He's never one more thing than another. He's always perfect in everything that he's doing. And his love is, is testified as strongly as his justice is testified to in Jesus' death on the cross. Now back to the why question as we wind down. Job never uh, got the answer to his question why. And there's a reason for that. One, he's requiring God to explain himself. And God simply says, we're not going there. I don't need to go there. You don't need that. I'm God and you're not. For you and I, though, there's another element to that 
if you've raised kids, you know this. So when your kids are growing up, like little uh, Colton or Marshall or Liam over there, when they're growing up and they get to be toddlers, right? And then they start speaking. And you know, what do they say once they, they can articulate speech? You know, there's a single question that they say all the time. Why? All the time, right? Now, that's a good thing. Because now they're taking things in and they're learning, right, boys? You're learning, right? Learn one thing or another. So why, 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 why? Now, sometimes those why questions get a little old, don't they? And <clears throat> excuse me, what do we say? I'm not answering because I said so. Is that okay? Is it okay for a parent to say to their toddler, because I said so? It is okay. That's a good thing. I'm the authority, you're the junior. I'm the PhD, you're the kindergartner. Because I said so. The thing for Job is this, and the thing for you and I is this. It's not as important for us to know why God does something as it is important for us to know God. And the issue at the end of the day isn't God explaining himself to us. It's that we have faith and confidence in who he is and what he's like. If God had to explain every why thing to us, would we do anything else in this life? We'd have to just keep asking why God this, why God that. We'd never live. So God says, trust me. That's the life of faith, right? The life of faith is we trust God. We don't understand everything. There's a ton of stuff we don't understand and never will on this earth. And God says that's okay because he's God and we're not. And we're called to trust him when we don't know why things are going on. So one thing you'll find when your life falls out, when the bottom falls out, you're going to be tempted to do just what Job did. You'll accuse God. You'll withdraw. You'll quit praying. You'll quit reading your Bible. You know what else? You'll quit going to the church where there's fellowship and worship. You'll quit doing all those and you'll withdraw inside. And it's the worst thing we can do. What we need is we need more confidence in God. And we get that through prayer and the scriptures and the fellowship of the saints and the encouragement we have when we come together and worship God together. He's not going to answer most of our why questions. It's not important. What's important is that we know him and we trust him. When our girls were little, uh, we'd given them their allowance and we were going to go, I think it was to McDonald's, get a Happy Meal or whatever. We were going to get something together. So they're going to take their allowance that dad gave them and they're going to buy their lunch. Now it's complicated. There's two of us, two adults. There's four little girls. And so I finally said, hey gals, how about this? How about you give me your lunch money? You tell me your order. I'll put the order in. I'll pay for it. And that'll simplify things. Is that okay? <laughs> A couple of girls say, yeah, that's fine. So one of my daughters in the back, though, she's silent, and the wheels are turning, and she hasn't said anything, and then she erupts, and she says, Dad, you're ripping me off! <laughs> I thought, man, what did I miss? I said, well, what do you mean? She thought she was going to lose money on the deal if there was a pot, and her money went into that. She thought she was losing money. So, but imagine her setting. I gave her the money. I gave the money to her. I'm intending to bless her through the lunch. I have no motive to rip her off. And she's my daughter and I love her and I want to bless her. But all she can see in that moment is, mistakenly, Dad is ripping me off. I'm losing money on this deal. But she forgot her dad loved her. Her dad gave her the money in the first place. Her dad's trying to bless her 
even in this lunch situation that she doesn't understand. Now, the better thing was, and God bless her, she's a lovely young woman today, and I think she trusts me, but I'm not sure. You can ask her. Um, in Job's life, you've got to remember this, Job was loved by God in chapter 1. When God boasted on him, he's blameless, he's upright. And I blessed him. I gave him all those kids. I gave him the wealth, the servants, the social standing. I gave him all of that stuff. Why? Because I chose to and because I love him. And God loved Job when he took all that stuff away. And Job didn't know why God had taken away. God didn't love him any less. And God loves him, and he displays that love again at the end of the book, doesn't he, when he gives all the stuff back. God's love hadn't wavered. It hadn't changed. It was never different. It was the same, no matter what was going on in Job's life. And guys, this is the thing for you and me. God's love for us is absolutely constant. It never wavers. It doesn't change. And for you and I, when the things fall out in life in ways we don't want and we don't understand, the issue is not to figure out why. You'll feel like a bus ran you over and your first thought is, why? Or sometimes, what did I do wrong? It's the wrong question. We should be saying things like, Lord, would you help me to trust you in this? Father, would you show me what you're up to here just so I have a sense of what you're doing? Help, help me be a part of that by faith. God can never love us less. He can never love us more. And no matter what's going on in our life, if he doesn't explain why, that's okay because that's not actually what we need. We need that confidence that's the rock under our feet that God is God and we're not. He owes us no explanation. But that same God who owes us no explanation has given himself in Christ to redeem us and to make us his children and to bless us forever in ways we can't even imagine now. So the big deal for us, just like it was for Job, is not to demand answers from God. It's to bow before God and worship him and say, you are God and we're not. And we're good with that. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to take the place of humility that is ours before you as creator, also, Lord, as redeemer? Would you help us to worship you with gladness, not just because you're God, Lord, but because you're good? Your ways are pleasant. You call us into life. You share yourself with us. You give us eternal life. We'll not only never perish, but we'll have joy and pleasures forever. Will you help us to rest in you by faith when we don't understand why things are happening in our life or why you're causing or allowing them? Help us rest in the fact that you're God and you're good. In Jesus' name.